You're listening to Tash Amplified, a podcast that seeks to transform research and experience concerning inclusion and equity for people with disabilities into solutions people can use in their everyday lives. Tash just released the latest issue of our quarterly membership magazine, Connections, the theme of which is the Individualized Education Program as a Living Document. Today we are talking with Amy Tosin, the guest editor of that special edition, about what the IEP as a Living Document means and how to implement such a vision. Amy Tosin, please introduce yourself for our listeners. What is your relation to the world of disability, and how did you come to your current work? Sure, that is a long question, but I'll try to get to the point quick, Donald. Thanks. So, hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I currently live in Texas. I'm a professor at Cardinal Stritch University, and I work in the College of Education and Leadership um, training, pre-service, special education teachers, and administrators. So, the way I got into education is um, an interesting story in the sense that it was sort of on accident. I, I was 17 and I was at a camp for young adults with disabilities. And I have to be honest, I was only there because I got out of a class in high school. I went to a Catholic high school. And if we volunteered so many hours over the summer, we got to get out of a class and have an extra free period. So I gathered a bunch of of my friends and we went and we volunteered at the Archdiocese camp for young adults with disabilities. So I spent a week there with all my friends who were, we were either 17 or 18, about to start our senior year in high school, ready to take on the world. And we were there with 19 through 21 year olds who were living a much different life than us. And while yes, they did have various forms of labels and um, abilities, I was constantly frustrated by the type of activities that I had to do with them. There was lots of arts and crafts, lots of swimming, lots of baby talking. And while there was a lot of fun being had, and and I don't mean to discredit this organization at all because they did wonderful things, I was sort of a spitfire then. And I went up to the director and said, hey, why on earth are you making these young adults do things that the five-year-olds I babysit for do? And I would never dream of doing them as a 17-year-old. And she said, have you ever thought about special education? And you should all know at this point in my life, I had already been accepted to a few colleges to study computer science. I loved computer programming, and I was actually a mathematician, and I loved math. And my... um, my parents were shocked when I decided to venture from this career choice. So I said, no, I've never heard about it. And she said, well, you should look into that and think about it and you could change the outcome for these people. And I rarely don't rise to a challenge. So I went home and I said, mom, dad, I'm going to college and I'm going to be a special education teacher. And they said, what is that? And I said, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that it's important work and I can do it. So I shift career choices. Then I got into the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where coincidentally, I studied under Lou Brown, who is a forefather of our field and really started the deinstitutionalization movement and inclusive ed movement for children and across the lifespan of people with disabilities. And I've developed and grown up in the field ever since, and I've never looked back. So call it what you will, but that's how I got into the field. 
Do you do you still use your interest in math and computer science? Do you focus on special education for math or technical skills, or do you do the whole gamut? Interestingly, I don't even focus on the technical skills at all. There was a point in my undergrad life that I thought I would co-major in computer science and special ed and get into computer programming for people with disabilities and assistive tech type stuff as I got to know the field better. Um, but I didn't do that for really a variety of selfish reasons because I had too much fun in college to double major. Um, and I really uh, gravitated towards that advocacy end. And I've always focused my career on my passion of making a difference and being a change agent. So that just didn't align. I think that the closest I get to using sort of my logical mind with my math focus is as just as a researcher and being able to apply that to my research, just being able to understand the research process and being analytic in my thinking and, and whatnot. But no, I don't use my math at all. <laughs> so tell us about this special issue of connections on the IEP as a living document and how it came about. So, you know, interestingly, this is something that as a early career educator in special ed and on through as a researcher and, and professor in special ed, I have always felt as if the IEP wasn't used properly. So I'd often have informal conversations and I've, and I've had formal conversations with people about it and I've done some work around it with other people. And it's been this consistent conversation that the IEP is just this frustrating barrier, an extra thing to do that causes extra work for people and it's stressful for parents and educators alike. And I've always thought so much more of it. I've always loved policy and I've loved being able to use policy and put it into practice. And I think the IEP is just right at that nexus and it just isn't used. So as I've grown and talking to people informally about it, um, I think it was Barb Trader that first said, hey, we really haven't covered the IEP at in our TASH connections in a while. It's, it's something that needs to be done. And then Julia White reached out to me and said, Amy, would you like to guest edit this and I thought this is a perfect issue for me and I you know reached out across the field to folks I know that could talk to this issue and really really hit it right where we need to and and that's how it came to be what do you mean by the idea of the individualized education plan as a living document so you know go back to what I said a bit earlier about the notion that this IEP has historically and and currently been viewed in practice as really a sense of frustration and burden and becomes more of a compliance checklist. And so to counter that how do we move beyond that? How do we move beyond compliance? How do we use the IEP for its purpose and and to be able to really help it build inclusive lives for individuals of differing abilities. And so that's where the idea of it being a living document comes in. And I didn't coin that term. Lots of people will say this document needs to be a living document, whether it be the IEP or something else. But it seemed very pertinent to this notion of the IEP should not be one point in time in a school year where we write down these goals and then pretty much forget about it other than reporting on it at the end of the year to make sure 
that we meet the goals, but it should be fluid. It should be part of a network of support, and it should be continually looked at as this guiding document that helps teams of people wrap arms of support around individuals to make sure that we're building everything we can into the life. And so seeing it as a living document versus a stagnant compliance-driven document allows us to open up our eyes and perspectives and practices to be able to use it very fluidly as a planning tool and a practice tool regularly. Tell us about some of the things that happen in the IEP process today that cause it to fall short of the vision of the IEP as a living document. Sure. You know, I think right out of the gates, the scheduling of it. Um, educators are busy. Prep times are minimal, if existent at all. Parents are juggling a lot. Um, they're busy. They often have to serve multiple roles if they're living with a child with differing abilities and often have other children at home. So the number one is the scheduling becomes this barrier and it becomes something uh, around the we can't fit it in, but we must. So right out of the gates, that sets the mentality out about it being a burden. And then if you keep it moving forward as you sit around the table, and I think um, Bill Black and Jessica talk great about this, this notion of you sitting around a table and there's one parent, maybe two, maybe an advocate comes in with the parent, and then a whole slew of educators or personnel from the district. And the more you request of a district as a parent, the more you typically have sitting at the table from the district end. And so it just, in that space, becomes this us versus them mentality without even intention. And you can have great educators that do not intend to do that, but when you have one set of parents, if maybe only one sometimes, and then anywhere from five to ten educators with varying titles from classroom teacher to school district administrator, it's, you know, it's definitely got power plays at work there. So that, the, the space and the structure of the meeting itself. And then often, often, educators come to the table with a complete draft written that may or may not have even been previewed by the parents. So it becomes more of a let's go around the room in a roundtable presentation style and have each person that contributed to the document from the school district report out what they already wrote. And then pause for a brief second and say, parents, do you have anything to add? And the parents are possibly still processing what was just said. Maybe what was just said was causing an emotional reaction with the parents. Maybe they disagree or agree, or maybe they don't even know yet because they're still trying to figure out what was just said before the next person is ready to jump in. So they didn't really have time to contribute in a meaningful way. And it goes around that way. And then at the end, we say... Let's sign the document. Is everyone in agreement? Yes, we sign. Done. Move on. We don't bring it back up again until the scheduling dilemma of next year happens. And so really, that is what I see in most schools. I mean, even when I was an educator myself, that's how it worked. I remember even one, one of my positions told me, you know, try three times. This was in an inner city where parent participation was a continual 
challenge and we had to be creative about how to do it and try three times. If you don't hear back, then we'll just fill out a form that they couldn't come and we'll go ahead with the IP meeting without them. So you have this wide range of this idea of let's just get it done. We just have to get it done because we have to report that we got it done all the way through to this document already being created that parents are really just meant to sit there and take in passively and then sign off on versus being this collaborative tool that the whole team creates together and refers to regularly. How do we get from the IEP process as it's practiced today to a vision of the IEP as a living document? You know, I, I think that's probably one of the most important questions you could ask, and it's it's complex and it's baby steps. We have to meet the field where they're at. So I think the first thing is to do what this issue has done and, and just own it and make light of it. Say, this this is an issue, so interrupt the narrative. You know, that's sort of how I, I start my introduction to say, we first have to lay the narrative out there and say, this is problematic and problematize it. So the field understands that this is a problem because I haven't met anyone in this field that isn't well-intentioned and very caring. And so if you can problematize it at the get-go, that's the first step. And then replace that narrative with some suggestions of how to move forward. So if we first say, hey, it's a problem. Okay, now we know we need new solutions. And I think that this, this whole issue has a whole lot of suggestions, but some that come to the top of my mind right now is, um, you know, one, that that IP is not put on the plate of solely the special education teacher, because often special education teachers have anywhere from 15 to 35 on their caseload plus. And of course it's gonna be this technical compliance driven thing because they can't meaningfully do it if it's only on their plate. So if it becomes a collaborative tool that, that the expectation is set from the administrators in the district to say, this IEP document is to be co-created and we have so many digital tools now that we can do that. You know, it, gone are the days we have to sit in a room at the typewriter typing it, right? We can collaboratively create a document and that it should be created by those general education teachers, those support staffs, the parents, the community personnel, and anyone else, um, you know, that, that has an interest in, and the child themselves first and foremost, uh, and create it together. And so if you start from that perspective, processes and structures will be put in place that work to allow it to be a collaborative tool versus a, hey, special education teacher, just like the general ed teacher writes lesson plans, you must write the IEP. That's your job. That's in your box. It, it needs to be put in everybody's box and shared across. And, and then structures and tools need to be put in place to allow people to collaborate. So one of the concepts that William Black and Jessica Montalvo use is that of an ad hocracy. Would you tell us about this notion? Sure. So ad hocracy is is a term that comes from us from lots of different disciplines, but it's it and it came out and I I could be wrong, Donald, you might have to cross-reference me here, but sort of in the 60s and 70s when the world was sort of against bureaucracy and government. And and some of our big thinkers came out and said, hey, we need a new way to do business overall. We don't want this bureaucratic structure where there's the boxes and the top-down approach. We need a more fluid system. So I, Amy Tosin, have a role that one day I'm a leader and one day I'm sitting on this team and one day I'm talking about leadership and the next day I'm talking about the best way to develop 
a lesson, right? So I'm, I'm ad hocratically moving in and out of groups based on current needs and goals of the system. It allows for, as as the article says, this divergent way of organizing yourself as a structure. It's messy and it's hard to put into this really pretty graphic like organizations love to do. There's lots of arrows, but it's this notion that it's fluid and moving in and out. And so similar to what I was saying, if, if we talk about the IEP, it's not in just one person's box. It's not in that special ed box. It's it's in the organization as a whole. And we have adhocratic teams that come together around the child to develop this document and review the document and adapt the document and apply the document over and over again. And who's in and out of who creates it and monitor it shifts based on who the child is and the the context of which they're working towards building skills, that becomes now an adhocracy, not a not a strict rigid bureaucracy that says there's a principal and then there's a box with a special ed teacher and then there's a box with a special ed teacher and then below that there's aides, but it becomes this in and out and the roles become fluid and and defined differently within each situation. So many parents, teachers, administrators view inclusive education as zero sum. If my child is put in the same classroom as that other child, that child from a poor family, that minority child, that English language learner, that child with a disability, then my child, my child's education is going to be diminished. But how can individualized education plans benefit an entire classroom or an entire school? Some of these articles discuss the IP as a kernel for a whole system change. What do people have in mind when they imagine the IEP as a general model for education reform? So I think um, maybe thinking of it more as a tool to a larger model of kind of universal education, inclusive education, that all kids belong to all people in these educational systems. This IEP, when we look at it through that adhocratic lens that people are moving fluidly in and out of it, it can be a way to push restructuring an organization from those rigid, strict boxes and silos to fluid moving in and out and wrapping expertise and professionals and those that have a vested interest in the need at hand around it. And let's be honest, it's not just children with differing abilities in the school systems that would benefit from that wraparound support. We have lots and lots and lots of children and staff that would fit in lots more than just one box that they're placed in. So if, if we begin to force the edge of using the IP as a tool around an autocratic structure, you're forcing the system to think differently, to operate differently, and therefore develop structures that are different than the bureaucratic structure of this is the box that only talks about and does disability, and this is the box that only talks about and does reading, and this is the box that only talks about and does math. Instead, let's look at the whole child and the whole system and move things there. So when you start to force the IP to do that, you begin to change the whole system around that. 
In addition, there's lots of folks that talk about and have for years, how wouldn't it be great if every child had an IEP or call it something else? And there are districts around the country that are trying that, especially as universal design for learning takes hold and different districts really work hard at that. There are districts that write mini IEPs, if you will, they have different names for every child. Um, and some are compliance driven and some are more around this notion of a living document. We have a lot of information now with progress monitoring and all the different ease of the technological ways to figure out how to customize and personalize learning that there's no reason we have to stick to these siloed ways of thinking about teaching and learning. And the IEP can kickstart that conversation and force us into a different structure. So we've, we've talked about some of these issues at, um, at kind of an abstract level. What can you tell us about this issue of connections? What are people going to find in it? What are people going to take away? Um, what are some What are some uh, outstanding points that are developed in this over the course of this issue, and maybe over the course of producing it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what's exciting about this issue is it starts from the abstract, and we t we talk in the beginning with most of the authors talk about that interrupting the narrative I talk about and the problematizing of it and, you know, some real, real life conversations from parents and educators in the field and living this day to day saying, this is a problem, folks. You know, um, Karen talks about how as an educator, how she was felt that this was meant to be just compliance and just kind of get it over and move on and how that made her uncomfortable. It was discomforting to her. And Bill and Jessica talk about how Bill in particular, before he was a parent, was an administrator and how he was guilty of, you know, structuring these IP meetings for very short minutes of time during prep times, not allowing any space or time for true authentic dialogue to take force. So we first talk about it there and problematize it. But then what each author does, and then as the issue builds, it gets focused solely on specific tools and strategies of what to do to make it different. So if, if you shift shift through this, you talk you talk to and you read about Heather and 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 Amy's suggestions step by step and while while they focus mostly on the language and augmentative communication, they're giving a step-by-step -step process of how one can use the standards and, and focus on inclusive ed and general ed standards to use the IP across all curricular areas to build communication and language, which is so, so important as, as a cornerstone for all children. And then, and then you keep going through the article and Debbie and Mike talk about just the notion of standards-based IEPs, which have been in our field for years, but it still is a challenge for educators to wrap their head about how to do that. So again, they give a step one, step two, step three process of how to write standard-based IEPs that allow for students to progress in the curriculum in an authentic, true way, and how checking back regularly and, and working with parents is so critical. And then you have Keith and Aaron really giving us the compliance piece through a legal lens, but talking about it in a way that helps us reframe the conversation outside of compliance into, into real life, authentic, inclusive ed. And then, and then the issue wraps up with a really important article 
by Kate and Julie around their co-teaching work, which is such a fantastic way to talk about that collaboration and how educators can work together to develop programming for all kids, including kids with disabilities and different abilities around their needs. And they have checklists and tools around how to do this and what co-teaching looks like and how roles are merged and the conversations that need to happen. And so picking up this document is almost, and I, and I hesitate to say this because I really don't like manuals, how-tos, because I think every situation is unique, but it's a great starting point template of how to get started in this work that you can take into your team tomorrow and say, hey, look at this, let's do it and then go from there, which is exciting. And that's what I'm really excited about this article is it moves from the abstract very quickly into great, yep, it's a problem. What are we going to do about it? Here's how we're going to do it. Say you're a parent or perhaps a an older student who's beginning to take responsibility for your own education, but you, you, you didn't get around to reading this issue. What are the important takeaways you should know? So I think, number one, you need to be sure, as I mentioned before, that the IEP is a collaborative tool co-written by multiple professionals and parents and the student. Not draft, here, revise, and edit, that it's co-written. I think, number one, that's where we start. Number two, that any meetings that occur, whether they be online, face-to-face, how all the different ways we have it, are set up in ways that promote authentic dialogue. So you have to have enough time. It has to be in a way that the power play is not there so that parents are equals at the drawing board and the student first and foremost is at the front of that table leading it themselves if they're able or definitely facilitated in that leading process you know and number three that there is more than one meeting a year around it I think that would be the three main things that you have an equal playing field that it is developed and implemented collaboratively and that you circle back to these meetings regularly regularly it's not just a one time in those are the three main things i think also couched within that obviously is the assumption from my end but it has to be said out loud that it's all about building authentic inclusive communities in natural settings and that this tool should be used for that and that there are ways to write it so that that happens. So progressing the general ed curriculum and and if we're looking outside of the K-12, that it's in the natural environment of that student based on their goals and dreams and needs. Amy Tosin, thank you for bringing together the special issue of Connections and thank you for taking the time tonight to talk with us about, about your work. Absolutely, of course. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. You've been listening to Tash Amplified. For more about the series, including show notes, links to articles discussed, a complete transcript, and a schedule of episodes, visit tash.org amplified. You can subscribe through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app to have the series delivered automatically to your device so you never miss an episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and on your social networks. 
Today we talked with Amy Tosin, the guest editor of the latest issue of our membership magazine, Connections, on The IEP is a Living Document. We're sufficiently excited about this issue that we're making it available to members and non-members alike, free for the month of August. To read the entire issue, visit tash.org IEP. You can also read about our other IEP-related campaign there, dedicated to raising awareness of the recent Supreme Court decision concerning special education, Andrew F. v. Douglas County School District. The campaign takes its name from a sentence from Chief Justice John Roberts' unanimous decision where he writes, The IEP is not a form. Prepare for the upcoming school year by visiting tash.org IEP. TASH is a values and research-based advocacy association with an over 40-year record advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. TASH is a coalition that unites people with disabilities, researchers, educators, service providers, family members, and others in the cause of guaranteeing that people with disabilities are able to participate in all aspects of life. In addition to this podcast series, we offer a scholarly quarterly, Research and Practice for Persons with Severe Disabilities, a popular magazine, Connections, local chapters covering 18 states, a series of webinars and regional conferences, and our annual conference. The theme for the 2017 annual conference is Still We Rise for Equity, Opportunity, and Inclusion. The conference will be in Atlanta, Georgia from December 13th through 15th and will feature about 1,000 attendees and 300 presentations by researchers, self-advocates, family members, educators, agency personnel, and other experts and advocates. You can learn more and register for the conference at tash.org slash conference2017. You can receive updates from Tash on this podcast and our other activities by following us on Facebook or on Twitter at Tash Tweet. Music for Tash Amplified is an original composition and performance by Sonny Seferati, the co-director and autistic self-advocacy mentor at The Musical Autist. You can learn more about The Musical Autist at www.themusicalautist.org. This has been a sample of the colleagues and conversations available through TASH. It is only because of the excellent work that our members do that we can bring you this information. For more resources such as this and to become a member, visit tash.org join. We'll hear from another outstanding advocate again in two weeks. Thank you.